Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Um, in this episode, we're beginning a, a new season of sorts. We're jumping into the 1970s, and we'll be looking at the, the works that Dick wrote in the 1970s. So um, I think it's about eight novels and a handful of short stories. Dick's production certainly leveled off or dropped off, like dropped off is the right term, um, after 1971 or so. Uh, 1970s, the works like A Maze of Death, and we're going to look at our friends from Frolox 8. After that, these are works that, that kind of continue in the 1960s themes. It's really going to be after 1971, 72 that Dick's, Dick's work starts to become much more sporadic, um, you know, where he writes Scanner Darkly in the Vatlas trilogy in the early 80s. So it really starts to slow down after that. But, you know, in the early years, it's he's still kind of on the momentum he had for the 60s. But, but certainly the 1960s are are a lighter um, spattering of works but some of his most well-known ones some of his some very good works in this period i i don't really i actually prefer the 60s stuff but i think there's a lot of interest in the 19 um in the stuff from the 1970s in fact this particular work uh that we're going to look at today a maze of death i'm going to start looking at it anyways this work has a lot of thematic connections to galactic pot healer it, its result where it ends up is very different. And it's actually surprising these two works are so close to each other. They're, in fact, opposites, thematically tied, but they're opposite conclusions. And in this way, it's almost as if two different people wrote them. I mean, they're both clearly Philip Dick novels. But it's almost like if, if Dick it was a schizophrenic and came to two different conclusions while writing at the same time almost. Um, the novels are really close. I don't know when they were written, probably within months of each other. He was putting words on paper about these two novels, but they come to two radically different conclusions about essentially the same problem. And that is the problem of how we find meaning in, in this world and, and, and you know how, what's the value of creativity in the world? How can we find a job, even something as simple as a job that gives us meaning in this life? And, and in Galactic Pot Healer, the solution went to being creative and, and finding meaning in doing something valuable. In, in, doing that collectively if, if need be. In A Maze of Death, those things are all turned into a toxic way. Uh, there's no possibility for creativity. There's really no possibility of getting meaning in life and other people are, are hell, right? It's like the John Paul Sartre line, hell is other people. That is all manifest in this book. So it, it comes off in a very, it's very different despite almost having a similar feel. Like you have people who are alienated, who need to have meaning in life they find an opportunity, they go to it, they join up with other people, they have a pro they, they think they have a project, something to work on. But in, in the maze of death, it all goes wrong, it all becomes toxic. Um, and I, I debated really strongly whether to, you know, spoil the book, the, the point of the book. It, it is, of course, 50, 60 years old, so I don't feel that bad about spoiling it. But it's just more about what's the best way to approach this particular text. You know, is it best to spoil? And I think I will. I think I will spoil it by the end of this episode, what this is about, because especially chapters three and four make more sense if you know where the book is going. So if you haven't read through The Maze of Death and you don't want to be spoiled by it, 
you know, maybe you want to read it first and then come back to hear my thoughts about, about this work. But I'm going to assume most of you have, have read this book before and know where it's going. And, you know, but, you know, for me to talk about it fully, I think I need to at least spoil some of what the conclusion of the novel is. So anyways, that, that's my introduction to A Maze of Death. One thing to warn you about, there's a lot of characters in the novel and they all have a role. So it's, it's kind of cluttered. It's a very short novel. It's, it's not much longer than The Galactic Pod Healer. It's pretty much in the same, same length. It's less than 200 pages. I, I'm working off the Library of America version. This is in the third of, of three volumes that the Library of America published of Dick's works. This is the one from his later novels. This has a maze of death in the Valis trilogy only. So they didn't they didn't include Scanner Darkly and a few other works that you know you raise your eyebrow thinking why they didn't they, why they didn't include that. But those are the four that the editor I think it was um I can look it up for you. It was uh, Jonathan Lethem who chose the books that were included in the Library of America edition. <clears throat> why he chose these I'm not entirely sure. But uh, certainly he wanted the Valis trilogy and he had room for one more work and he included A Maze of Death. Um, so I'm working off that one, that version, and that's 170 pages. So not very long. Um, pretty much the same length as Galactic Pot Healer. But again, it pairs with it very nice. So I think if you read these two works together, and it's a really good point of, to analyze next to each other, to debate, because they do deal with the same problem. So with that, let's just jump into the text. We'll look at the first four chapters in this episode. And as usual, we'll, we'll take about four chapters in, in upcoming episodes till we get through it. Okay, so chapter one, we're introduced to a man named Ben Tallchief. He is a, a naturalist. And each character in this novel is going to have a different job. Um, it's kind of like, in that way, again, it's like Galactic Pod Healer, where you're pulling together a lot of different abilities. Um, and he's praying for a new job and he gets news, he gets word that his prayer for a new job is answered and he gets transferred to a world called Delmach O. Now, it, I guess we should kind of go and say it that the world in, that Dick presents here is, has a theology that's kind of a naturalistic theology, I guess, it, but it's, it still has a deity. It, it's not like a Druid worship or earth worship or something like that. Um, it actually is based on the idea that God is real and exists. Um, now, Dick, now Dick claims he worked this out with some other people. Uh, in his introduction to the novel, he says, I should say, too, that the late Joseph Bishop James A. Pike, sorry, the, the, the late Bishop James A. Pike, in discussions with me, brought forth a wealth of theological matters for my inspection, none of which I was previously acquainted with. He also says that the theology of this novel is not an analog for any known religion. It stems from an attempt made by William Serrell and myself to develop an abstract logical system of religious thought based on the arbitrary postulate that God exists. End quote. Now, if that sounds, uh, well, it shouldn't sound new to you. Dick had done this before. He did this in Eye in the Sky. One of the delusions that the characters went through in Eye in the Sky was based on, was based on a, uh, the, of the proposition that God exists and answers prayer. So if Dick is saying this is new, a new idea, it's not really a new idea to him. And the theology here is actually has something similar with Hinduism almost in that there's a creator god called the manufacturer. There's kind of a destroyer god called the form destroyer. So there's the death and life cycle. And so in Hinduism, it's Shiva is the form destroyer and Brahman is the creator. And then you have the walker on earth who kind of takes the role almost, I think, of Vishnu, who's kind of the sustainer god. Um, so that 
that's not entirely original either. I mean, other traditions have had this idea of a creator God and a destroyer God and some God that kind of sustains life. So maybe maybe he's honest here in that, you know, it was fully bait. Come one of those conversations with, with William Serrell. I don't know, but uh, that's the world we, we, we have here. And so people, this God exists, so people pray to him and those prayers are answered and that confirms God's existence. So for most of this novel anyways let's uh we, we we base it on the presumption that god exists he you know it's confirmed he's a, a nat almost a naturalistic explanation for for god's existence um so the prayers will be answered that's one thing to remember now not all prayers will be answered prayers done right prayers worded correctly will be answered uh and ben Talchief got his prayer answered he got transferred to delmont oh um, but right away, we're in the world of Galactic Podhealer, a character who needs to find meaning in his life. Here's what he says when he gets his new job or what he thinks about it when he gets this word that he's going to get a new job. Quote, he felt his anticipation grow, a creative job at last, and just when he needed it most. Another few weeks here, he said to himself, and I would have been pizzling away at the bottle again, as in lamented former times. And of course, that's why they granted it, he realized. They knew that I was nearing a break. I'd probably have wound up in the ship's brig along with, how many were there in the brig now? Well, no, however many there were, 10 maybe. Not much for a ship of this size and with such stringent rules. End quote. So he is, he needs a new job. He needs a new meaning in life. He's falling into the bottle, right? He's, he's a character who we'll learn later on is, a, is an alcoholic. We also learn about the book that explains the nature of God. This book, it's a book that everyone has and everyone reads. Obviously, because if God is real and answers prayers, there'd be no reason not to have his holy book. The book's actually written by a prophet of sorts, by a man named called A.J. Spektowski. And the book's called How I Rose from the Dead in My Spirit Time, and So Can You. It's got a kind of interesting base commercialist title, but this is the book that that explains the nature of God and what has been proven by science to be, be the true nature of God. He thinks about the only job he had that gave him any meaning, and this was a job in which he could be creative. Quote, of all his many meager jobs, he had enjoyed only one, and he still meditated about that now and again. In 2105, he had operated a background music system aboard a huge colonizing ship on its way to one of the Denob worlds. In the tape vault, he had found all of Beethoven's symphonies mixed haphazardly with the string versions of Carmen and one of Delby's, and he had played the fifth, his favorite, a thousand times throughout the speaker complex that crept everywhere within the ship. End quote. So he, we already see here that the job he wants is something tied to creativity, something that will allow him to do something meaningful. We also learn here, just in passing, that The Lord of the Rings has become a kind of a classic epic, almost like classic literature but not just like we read melville as classic literature but in the you know kind of how we read gilgamesh or something as classic literature kind of a quasi religious text from the ancient world it's not set that far in the future though so it's still you'd imagine it would still be a historical text of literature not mythologized but for whatever reason dick wanted lord of the rings as a as a mythological text kind of like king arthur um, so anyways, right away in chapter one, I, I think we, we feel we're in thematically the same world as Galactic Pot Healer. You know, how do we find meaning in life through our work? And we're introduced to one of our characters, Ben Tallchief. His name does suggest an Indian heritage, and he has it. I think later on we learn he has a one-eighth 
Indian heritage. So chapter two is the same type of chapter in which we have a character who wants a new job, who wants to escape and gets that chance. In fact, chapters one through four are two pairings of the same thing happening, right? I think that's important. And so I'm just gonna spoil the book for you at this point. So if, again, if you don't wanna have this spoiled to you, you know, read the book and come back. What's happening here is all the characters in the story are on a ship, basically stuck in space, lost in space, and they'll never be able to be saved. They'll never be able to get back. So they're just waiting to die. And the way they kind of keep their sanity is by putting themselves into fake worlds. It's like a toy, it's, a, it's like entertainment for the colonists, but the only way they keep themselves sane is by putting themselves periodically into this, into alternative worlds where they live out, basically they waste time. Like maybe they, they spend one day, for instance, this novel takes place over a day, but maybe in the, in the real world, they spend a couple weeks. So it's a way for them to waste time, but it's also a way for them to work out their anxieties and, and frustrations and anger towards each other, right? So it's keeping them sane on this long voyage. Essentially what we have here is the story of an internal return, right? So the, every world is kind of unique and, and remade based on everyone kind of contributes somewhat to the making of the world, but it is an eternal cycle for them, just a little bit different each time. And that's, that's the, I guess, the, the secret of the novel, right? And it's already kind of laid out for us here in that we have chapter one and chapter two are basically the same thing, just from different points of view. And chapters three and four are the same thing from different points of view. And in fact, some of the conversations are exactly the same. And especially in chapter three and four, you see him basically talking about the same stuff at two different times with two different people, reusing the same jokes, uh, which is what happens when you're with people too long, right? When you're stuck with the same people for, you know, years and years, maybe at a workplace, you hear the same jokes a million times. And, and that already happens by chapter three or four. So when you read this a second time or the third or fourth time, whatever, you realize that Dick is kind of giving you these clues that they are stuck in some kind of eternal trap. So anyways, chapter two, as I said, is just another character realizing he's got his prayers been answered and he's able to go to um, another planet. And this kind of, I think it's not so much he prays, he just gets the transfer um, to, to this planet, Delmach O. So um, now the character we meet here is Seth Morley and he is a marine biologist. It's kind of like Ben Hall Chiefs, he's a naturalist. Seth Morley is more accurately a marine biologist and he has the most useless job on the planet he's currently at. He's working at a kibitz and we have talked earlier about Dick's interest in the kibbutz model and he uses a lot in the story, especially as a model of colonizing the, the cosmos. So his particular kibitz is called Tekel, Tekel Uparshan. Now this planet doesn't have any oceans, so his job as a marine bi biologist is really, really useless. Um, and he's like um, Ben Tallchief, and even maybe more so, exhausted and in need of a new life. So much of the chapter is based on Seth Morley then preparing a noser for transport to Dalmach O. Um, now the nosers, it's actually something that Dick used, I think, back in the simulacrum, which is that are there. There they were called um, what are they called? Jalopies. They're essentially one-way uh, emigration vessels, right? So they're ships that have enough power and technology and, and 
mechanics or whatever to get you to another planet, but they can't get you back, right? So even if they're refueled, they're not really set to go back. They can only aim at one place and go there. So they're emigration ships, and here they're called nosers. And everyone's going to get to Delmach O by noser. Again, I don't know if this really exists in the world, the real world. It's, um, you know, it's just what they're construct. A lot of everything we see here is, it's dubious whether it really exists or not in the real world. It just might just be figments of people's imagination as they construct this false reality. And so we pick up with him filling up this noser with their stuff, and mostly he's filling it up with marmalade, which turns out to be the only good thing made by this kibbutz. This kibbutz is presented as kind of a, a horrible place, not just for Seth Morley, but in general. Um, we get a bit more about the nature of prayer here and how it, how it works, and how it, this might intersect with other world religions. Um, at one point, Seth says, I think so because God doesn't grant too many prayers by Jews, due to that covenant back in the pre-intercessor days when the power of the form destroyer was so strong and our relationship with to him, to God, I mean, was so followed up. So that's, that's a bit interesting. Again, this theology is not fully uh, developed here, but um, the intercessor period, is this, that's the name essentially for God, right? It has these different avatars, the manufacturer, the walker on earth, and the form destroyer. And, um, and again, he, does, he definitely does answer prayers. And prayers can be even read and intercepted. It's kind of a sin. It's kind of a full pot to do that. But when you send in prayers, it's a physical thing that gets sent up and they can be intercepted electronically and read by people. So Seth Morley's boss knew he was looking for another, another job. The heart here is just how depressed he is at this um, Tekel Ufarsen. You know, quote, depression hit him as it generally did towards mealtime. I wonder if it's all worth it, he said to himself, going from one no good job to another. I'm a loser. Mary's right about me. Look at the job I did selecting a noser. Look at the job I'm doing loading the stamp stuff in here. He gazed at the interior of the noser, conscious of the ungainly piles of clothing, books, records, kitchen appliances, typewriter, medical supplies, pictures, wear forever couch covers, chess sets, reference tapes, communication gears, junk, junk, junk. What have we, in fact, accumulated eight years of work here? He said to himself, nothing of any work. And in addition, all he could not get all of it into the noser. Much would have been thrown away or left for someone else to use. Better to destroy it, he thought to himself gloomily. And I think somewhere here, the word kipple is used, right? And um, we've seen uh, pizzled used too. And that was a term used, I think, in autofact. Um, as kind of a made-up word. So Dick's re reusing words here, which makes sense because, again, this is a manufactured, it's an aggregate world by, constructed by different consciousnesses. Well, anyways, what happens is while he's filling up the snows there, the walker on Earth, one of these avatars of the intercessor, comes in and, and warns him that this noser is going to... This, the noser is called the morbid chicken, by the way, but this, this noser is going to break down before they get to Delmak, oh, killing him and his wife. And he says, pick a different one. So he picks out, the walker on earth helps him pick out a different noser and helps him actually unpack it, the noser, and, and fill up the other noser with, um, with their stuff, right? And to kind of confirm that he is, in fact, the, the walker on earth, this avatar of God, he tells a story about a cat that Seth Morley used to love. And this is what he says. Once years ago, you had a tomcat whom you loved. He was greedy and mendacious, and yet you loved him. One day he died from bone fragments lodged in the stomach as a result of filching the remains of a dead Martian root buzzard from a garbage pail. You were sad, but you still loved him. His essence, his appetite, all made him up, had driven him to his death. You would have paid a great deal to have him alive again, but you would have wanted him, but you would have wanted him as he was, greedy and pushy. 
himself as you loved him unchanged. Do you understand? And then Morley says how he prayed, but no help came. Oh, no, that help came. The man, or he, he says the manufacturer could have brought this cat back to him had he, had he prayed. And the walker on earth suggests he gets psychiatric help for his, his anxieties. But nevertheless, he blesses him and, and departs sometime after. Um, now, he goes back and then tells his wife that he met the walker on earth and she doesn't really believe him. She, she kind of rejects him. But he talks a little bit with her about her, his cat and his feelings for his cat. So that's all for chapter two. Chapter three is we're back to Bentall Chief, and Bentall Chief is is going to arrives at Delmaco. He, he's made he's finished his voyage from that ship he was on, and he arrives at Delmaco. He lands and he meets everyone else. So most of the other people are already there on Delmaco. So he meets the gang, meets the people, and you may you know it might be hard to remember these. It's it's best to write them down. I actually had to write these down when I reread this novel. Every time I read this novel, I have to write down these names. Um, oh, by the way, this reminds me, the, the chapter title, do we have titles? It's not common in Dick's novels, of course. Um, it's, there's a table of contents prior to chapter one, which lists the 16 chapters, all with um, made-up titles. Like chapter one's called, In Which Ben Chief Wins a Pet Rabbit in a Raffle. Chapter two is called, Seth Morley Finds Out That His Landlord Has Repaired, That Which Symbolized All Morley Believes In. Now, I think you, if you wanted, you can kind of try to twist out some meaning here. Dick's just having fun, I'm, I'm pretty sure. But a lot of the characters are mentioned in, in, the, in this table of contents doing different things, none of which really connects to the plot in any concrete way. I, again, I think the, the meaning when you come back to it is that they've kind of run through this story or a story like this so many times that maybe these things have happened in other iterations of, of their hallucinations that they put themselves into. Um, but anyways, may, that, that may help you remember some of these characters if you look at that, that list, though. Um, but anyways, I'll go through them because um, it's very quickly. He just does the handshake, goes around the room, meets or all the, the landing pad, meets the people. So there's Betty Joe Byrne, the linguist. There's Bert Kostler, the custodian. Maggie Walsh is the theologian. Ignaz Thug works in thermoplastics, so he's more of the working class tough guy. Uh, Kind of doing the more of the actual making of the buildings and stuff. Uh, Milton Babel is the doctor. Tom Dunkelwelts is uh, the soil expert, and he's also the photographer. We have Wade Frazier, who's a psychologist. Glenn Belsner works in electronics. Then we have Roberta Rockingham, who's a sociologist, and she's notable because she's much older than all the other characters. She's already of advanced age. And then Suzanne Smart is the secretary. Um, and there's a joke that keeps getting repeated throughout the novel at almost a ridiculous pace, and that's that everyone calls her Susan Dumb, right? Uh, and she wants to be called Susan Smart, and you know she's the secretary, so the cliched secretary. Um, it's, it's an unfortunate one, of course, the stereotype of the secretary, but Dick here uses it for um, some purpose, anyways. But those are the main people we're introduced. They're not the only characters in the novel. We'll, we'll meet a few more. There's a character who comes late. There's another one in the story as well. But these are the ones that are introduced. These, these are all the different professions. So we have all these different jobs, all these people contributing their various skills to a big project. Again, we're very much in the world of, of galactic pot healer, right? And all these are characters who have left other jobs, who have gone here hoping that they'll find something meaningful in their life in this new place. 
Um, but throughout this all, we get this feeling of just this dullness and the strangeness of, of the place they're in and, and of the characters. Um, quote, the air smelled bad, faintly bad, as if a waste processing plant was chugging away in its vicinity. But in a couple of days, I'll be used to it, he informed himself. There's something strange about these people, he said to himself. What is it? They seem so, he hunted for the word, overly bright. Yes, that was it. Prodigies of the sort and all of them ready to talk. And then he thought they must be very nervous. They must like it, like me. They know they're, they're here without knowing why. But that didn't fully explain it. He gave up then and he turned his attention outward. So everyone is, they don't know their job yet. That's one problem here, right? Until everyone comes, they can't really contact the satellite for their instructions from the government explaining what their job here is on Delmago. Are they settlers? Are they explorers? Are they here, you know, for some other purpose? But also this place is presented as just very dull. Quote, this is a dull place, he thought. He felt a swift disappointment. Not much better than the ship. The magic had already left. But Joe, Betty Joe Burnett spoke of unusual life forms beyond the perimeter of the colony. So possibly he couldn't justifiably extrapolate on the basis of this little area. Um, so he's a bit worried that this place is just going to be another boring place. It's, it's not, it's again, we don't get this big project, right? What in Galactic Popular, you had the Glimmon, the Glimmon and the Raising Held Scala and this plan to do something great. That's missing in this novel. They're just aimless. They're a group of people looking for a task, but they can't find it. They're just kind of grasping at straws. Ben, ben at one point calls this place a second-rate planet, and he already starts drinking. I mean, within the first chapter of him arriving on Delmaco, he starts drinking, which is his old curse, as we learned from chapter one. Uh, we learn a little bit about the, the characters, their anxieties. Um, we're also told that they're already taking kind of drugs to get by in this, in this world, and, you know, different kind of stimulants and, and other types of drugs. So... Uh, already something is very wrong in this in this world all right then chapter four um, chapter four is a repeat of chapter three um, largely it's gives a little bit more detail it's not a word-for-word -word repetition but the, the scene is essentially the same this time it's Seth Morley arriving and he meets everyone the only difference is now he meets Ben Ben Tall Chief we get a little bit more of an internal monologue with Seth Morley's chapters than we do in Ben's um, there's a little bit of anxiety here about the, the situation they're in. Um, for instance, Glenn Belsnor, who's the electronics and one of the, the wiser people, one of the wiser ones of the group. In fact, he turns out to be the actual captain on the actual ship that they're, they're in. He explains to Seth Morley that already, again, they, some of them have just been there for a few months and some just for a few days, that the place is already breaking down a little bit, the, the order and discipline. He says, we're a freaking mob, Morley. It's been like this since I got here, right after Fraser came. You know what Fraser tried to do? Since he was the first one here, he tried to set himself up as a group leader. Even he told us, told me, for example, that he understood the instructions to mean that he would be in charge. We almost believed him. It sort of made sense. He was the first to arrive and he started giving those freaking tests to everyone. And he started making loud comments about our statistical abnormalities as the creep puts it. Um, so there's this already kind of a power struggle and personality conflicts among the small group of people. Now some characters even start to have second thoughts about coming here. I think Ben Tallchief had this right away when he just found out how kind of crappy this planet is. Um, we get a little bit of internal monologue of Babel, the, the doctor, and he says, why did I come here? He asked himself. No immediate 
No answer immediately came. Only a wail of confusion came from within him. Drifting shapes that com complained and cried out like indignant patients in the charity ward. The shrill shapes plucked at him, drawing him back into a world of former times, into the restlessness of his last years on Orion the 17. Back to the days with Margot, the last of his office nurses, with whom he had conducted a long, inelegant affair, a misadventure which had, he had ended up as a which has ended up as a heap of tangled tragic comedy, both for him and for her. In the end, she had left him. Or had she? Actually, he reflected, everyone leaves everyone when something as messy and jury-rigged as that terminates. And all the characters feel this kind of anxiety. It comes up again and again. There's no, there's really very little reason to think, hopefully, about how this novel is going to end up. At least with Galactic Pot Healer, you had a degree of optimism among our main, the main character. At least when he ran into Glimmon, right? He may have felt bleak about his position on Earth, but there was, he was immediately taken in by this mission. Here, the mission is just seemingly another dead end. And all these characters have been there before. And that's what we're... And, and in fact, that's what turns out to be the answer to the whole novel, is all these characters have been here before, just again and again, sort of endlessly. So anyways, now that Seth Morley's arrived, they're able to contact the, the satellite which is supposed to give them their, their mission. It's like from the government or whatever, what they're supposed to do there. And it, they, they contact it and it starts to play something, but because of some malfunction, it gets copied over the minute it, it plays. So they don't get a mission. So they're, they're, they really have no purpose here on Del Monco, at least no stated purpose. And what, what can they do at this point? Do they go back? Well, they have nosers. There's no way to travel back. They're stuck there. The only thing they can do is maybe contact the authorities to get you know a mission now what's really happened here is whatever then they created the simulation on the real in the real world on the ship for whatever reason they couldn't come up with a mission and you know that's they couldn't agree on it or the computer couldn't manufacture one or for whatever reason they don't have one so it, it's how we are sometimes in dreams right we have dreams and we don't quite know why we're there or we can't really accomplish our goals uh, you know they're they are essentially in a dream world so that frustration we feel in a dream world where we can't achieve our destination or sometimes even know why we're there is, is part of this. Um, another theme in this book, um, as it is in Galactic Popular, and another thematic overlap is that of entropy. Um, we, of course, have it clearly stated here that we're in a world with a, a form-destroying deity, a deity whose one of avatars is a form-destroyer. Um, and that's talked about quite a, a bit in this chapter when... When Seth Morley notices that the buildings are, are falling apart already, and even though they're supposed to be new buildings for these settlers, they're, they're already breaking apart. Quote, these buildings are built lousy. I can already, they're already ready to fall down. We can't get it warm when we need warm. We can't get it cool when we need to get cool. You know what I think? I think this place was built to last only a very short time. Whatever the hell we're here for won't last long, or rather if we're here long, it'll be to construct new installations right down to the BX cables. Wait, I think that's, that's not Seth Morley who says that, though. That's one of the other characters. They're all talking past each other in this part of the, the story. A lot of overlapping conversations. So anyways, um, that's the first, that's the introduction to the Maze of Death. So we introduced to our, our characters. There's a lot of them, obviously, so it's worth just kind of jotting them down, I think. Um, but the main thing we feel is we have characters who are seeking some meaning, and that meaning is constantly evading them, whether it's where they were before or their new location. They can't even get an order from a boss to tell them what they're meant to, to do. 
they're all seeking for that. There's a lot of built up. There's a lot of hostility between the characters already. A lot of mistrust. Um, again, we we're not in the world of galactic popular, even though we're thematically dealing with the same questions of finding meaning and 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 dealing with entropy and dealing with the inevitability of death and all that. Everything is much more in the open in this novel, though, in a way. In Galactic Pod Healer, I guess the, the idea of a mission is out in the open. But here, like the idea of God, the idea of God as a destroyer, a form destroyer, the cycles of creation and form destruction are clearly laid out right at the beginning. Those themes are packed in Galactic Pod Healer a little bit later in the story. Uh, and we already feel we're in a, in, a, in a story that's built on, structured around cycles and, and repetition. And we have that with the repetition of Ben Talchief's story and Seth Morley's story, uh, two different characters arriving, repeating the same conversations, meeting the same people. So anyways, that's, that's it. That's my thoughts on the first part of, of The Maze of Death. So um, if, you know, in the, for, the next ep, for the next episode, read through or review chapters five through eight, which will take us to the halfway point. Of, of the story and we'll see how these characters deal with the fact that they they seem not to have a, a purpose here so anyways leave your own thoughts about uh, a maze of death uh, below or send me an email at 100 pages cast at gmail.com um, you know although I like galactic popular a lot more I, I I think this novel is interesting and I think there's a lot to say about it uh, it's frustrating for me because I do see Dick's turn towards the pessimist pessimistic a little bit more and the bleakness of this novel it, you, that you see in some of his later stories is, is certainly here and, I, and it's a, I find it a frustrating novel the same way the dreams where you don't find out why you're there or you can't accomplish your goals can be frustrating so that's part of Dick's point though he wants you to feel the frustration that his characters feel but anyways leave your own thoughts below and I'll be back shortly with part two of my thoughts on a means of death to feel these changes happening in me